Hi, welcome to Master Your Mind with me, Marissa Peer, teaching you the secrets to harness the powerful potential of your mind so you can have a fulfilled and happy and extraordinary life. Send your questions or your problems you'd love me to solve to podcast at marissapeer.com. Hello, everyone. Today I'm talking to a truly amazing man with a remarkable life that you're going to hear all about. I'm talking to Peter Sage, and Peter is a serial entrepreneur who made his first million at the age of 22. He's had six TEDx talks. He's raised a million pounds for various different charities, and he's just the most remarkable man. He was awarded Brand Laureate for his humanitarian work. I believe you spent your entire life studying human behavior, is that correct? Uh, through one way or another, yes. Uh, <laughs> and it's certainly become a passion of mine in the whole personal growth space, you know, what makes us do what we do. So let's start at the beginning. There's so many things I want to ask you, but I know that you start, you left school very early and you began working at the age of 17, is that correct? Or was it even younger? Yeah, well, I dropped out of school at 16. I discovered quite early on, I'm not very academic. I wouldn't call myself smart, certainly not book smart. And I realized school kind of teaches you two things. It really teaches you how to pass tests and work for somebody else. That was kind of the, mm-hmm. the general push from the, the legacy of the traditional school system. I'm changing a little now. Uh, but I, I started my first business at 17, uh, selling toys on car boot sales, would you believe? And, uh, and that really sort of set me up and uh, since then, you know, started a whole bunch of different enterprises throughout the, the last 30 plus years since I was officially employed. I, I did have a, a couple of small jobs, uh, I think, when I, I finally really understood that I definitely didn't want to work for somebody else. So, yeah, that, that's really been an entrepreneurial career for three decades plus now, I think. But, yeah, no formal qualifications as such. Uh, I say I've got a PhD in results and, uh, and that's pretty much set me up. But you just said something interesting about that. You didn't think you were smart, but yet you were very smart. You just weren't smart in the way we formally recognize smartness in children, which I think is so outdated. We, 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 we tend to reward achievement rather than effort. And obviously you're incredibly smart because you were a millionaire at 22. So would you tell me how that came about? Really, to be honest, it, it really was the, the early stages of me trying to work exceptionally hard to get over the insecurities as a young man that I felt I wasn't good enough. And so I got into the classic achiever pattern. I got into the you know, hustle, work all hours, God send. And you know, by 25, I was, you know, I was buying Ferraris for cash and flying Concorde and, and doing all this kind of stuff. And everybody saw me as what I believe to be kind of wonder boy. And inside, I just felt empty. I felt like there's gotta be more than this. Clearly I need another Ferrari. Clearly I need something else. Cause I thought that when I got to the top of Success Mountain, I'd be okay. And now I wanna jump off because, you know, there's a, I found out there's a massive difference between a life chasing success versus a life chasing fulfillment. And that really became a passion of mine to unravel that mystery that traps so many entrepreneurs or people that are out there trying to strive to prove that they're good enough, worthy enough, yeah, significant enough, fill in the blank. Uh, and really that was the, the, the impetus for the journey that I, I then took in the understanding what makes us tick. So yeah, while, while it may have looked glamorous to the outside world, uh, really, I would have swapped places with anybody that had less that felt better. And what was it, do you think, that made you feel that having more made you feel less? Because you just said you'd swap places who had less but felt better. And I do see that with many of my clients. They pursue stuff. And then when you pursue stuff, you need more stuff and more stuff and more stuff to feel valid. 
And I've always believed that whenever you're looking for self-esteem outside of yourself, you're looking over there, you're looking in the wrong direction. But what was it at such a very young age when you had financial success and probably people envied you and looked at you as doing something extraordinary? What was it that made you unhappy and dissatisfied with that? I, I think you, you nailed it, Marissa. You, you start to realize there's a huge difference between external and internal validation. And when you start to pursue the, the, the more, you know, I thought I'd be happy when I had my first million. Of course, I made my first million. And of course, I'm unhappy because now I'm, I'm panicking. I need two million in case I lose the first. Now mm. I'm coming from fear of loss, where before I didn't have anything to lose. And yeah, I've worked in, in my career with people worth $700 million that are miserable because they're not a billionaire yet. That, that game never ends. Uh, and so it was really the, the realization that external validation is essentially running around in life looking for somewhere else to plug in your umbilical cord, seeking approval, you know, seeking acceptance, and knowing that the only place that can ever come from is being internally validated. And a lot of people are on that hamster wheel and, and never get off. I was, I was grateful for the awareness. So what did you do then? So you, you'd made all this money, you had the Ferrari, you suddenly realize, and many people don't realize, and it's, it's a great um, sign of how emotionally aware you are that you realize at a very early age that, that money and the pursuit of money, just to pursue more money, there is no happiness there. I've worked with, as you say, billionaires, and they're so stressed about I, to, this lifestyle of the yacht, the homes, the plane, I have to keep making more money to maintain this and they don't see their families enough and they have an entourage, they have to keep on the payroll and it all becomes somewhat pointless. I'm, years ago, I went to visit an, an incredibly famous woman who lived in Malibu. She had a whole swathe of Malibu beach to herself and security and bodyguards. And I've never met a lonelier person. And I remember thinking, gosh, if you worked in a shop and went to the pub at night with friends, you'd probably be happy. But here you are with all this staff. And she even had someone who was her gift opener. I, I thought it was, what a strange job. She had a member of staff who was her gift opener. And their job was to open her gifts. And she had a whole room full of gifts and they'd send letters back saying, thank you for the gifts. They're quite lovely. She never saw them. And it was just a strange world that you didn't really think, oh, I want this. And Sometimes clients walk into my office and they look amazing, they're stunning and all dressed in Chanel. And then you think, mm, actually, I don't want to be you after all. So you had that realization very early, which is extraordinary in itself. But what did you do when you had that realization? Well, I think part of it was how it came about. And you know, I'm a great believer and I've certainly you know, come to enforce that belief moving forward that life will definitely have you know, built in feedback mechanisms if you're off track. Now, I call it the rumble strip of life. And whether that's health, you know, if you take your hand off the wheel and not paying attention, you're sort of veering off. Yeah, any freeway, whether it's the 405 or the M1 or whatever it may be, it's like, brrr, you know, you hit that rumble strip. And for a lot of people, they look at it as an, an inconvenience to their music. Yeah, you know, they, they don't take the feedback. You know, if that's a health issue, it may be getting out of breath walking upstairs or not having your pants fit the right way. And it's like, you've got, a, you've got a, an initial bit of feedback there, which gets louder the more you veer out of the center of the road. And yeah, for me, that I, I clearly wasn't listening to the small sign, so I had a big one. And you know, back to the driving metaphor, I actually hit an island, an intersection at 60 miles an hour, driving home from the office one night at 2 a.m. 
And I was working 130 to 133 hours a week. I was yawning in meetings and apologizing in advance for, for you know, nodding off. And I fell asleep driving home and bang. Luckily, I wasn't hurt um, yeah, too badly. Nobody else involved. Yeah, the car certainly wasn't too happy. And I just remember sitting at the side of the roadside that night, Teresa, thinking I was waiting for the tow truck, thinking, what just happened? You know, what am I doing here? I mean, I'm building a monster that's trapping me. For what? So, so that I can you know, prove to the world that I've you know, really found out doesn't care, that I'm good enough. I mean, that, that, that was really the real tipping point for, for the levels of awareness that started to wake me up to the fact that life shouldn't be about trying to get to the end of the rainbow. And again, you and I have probably seen so many people this way. It's, it's the entrepreneurial you know, tragic comedy that you know, we give up and sacrifice so much. You know, we put in the hours, we, we let go and neglect our health, our relationships, we miss our kids growing up so that hopefully we're on that small percentage that can get to the end of the rainbow to find that pot of gold. And for the small percentage that actually make it, what happens? They now finally have enough money so that they can pay for their divorce, they can hire a personal trainer to get their health back and buy their kids loads of stuff so they remember them again. I, I mean, it's, it's almost, as I say, it's a tragic comedy. And I, and I saw that early on and thought, whoa, that, that, there's got to be a better way. Uh, and that really was the, the tipping point of starting to design myself out of the equation and ultimately asking better questions. You know, I, I'm a great believer. Questions are the steering wheel of the mind. And yeah, they really are. if you ask a better question, you're going to get a better answer. Most of the time, the question is, why am I not good enough? Why am I not happy yet? And the brain's designed to give you an answer, yeah, because your teacher said you weren't, because you're smart, because your elder brother's better than you, because you know, whatever. The, the mind's job is to justify your behavior to be in alignment with your default current emotional state. Now, if you pre promise to get up tomorrow morning at 6 a.m. and the alarm goes off, your mind's job is to find the reason why you should press the snooze button. Now, if you're angry, the mind's job is to find the reason why it's okay not to apologize. So once you know that that's the mind's job, you can start to sort of separate and say, oh, that's just, I, I can expect it to do that and not buy into it. And so asking better questions led to getting better answers. You know, what's most important to me right now? Why am I really doing this? Because I'm, you know, I'm a young kid who dropped out of school with a, a chip on his shoulder to try to prove to my parents, to you know, my friends at school that I'm, I really can be successful. Well, no amount of certificates on the wall would ever do that. No amount of you know, external toys are gonna do that didn't. So what's, what's most important? How can I focus on finding me? And then from that place, go give my gift to the world, irrespective of whether I think that there's judgment there or not. That, that was really the path. And you certainly did give your gift to the world with your six incredible TED Talks. So could you tell, tell, tell us about those, the first one and what made you be a TED speaker and, and how did that impact and influence your life and the people you were talking to? Well, the, the, the career as a speaker was kind of parallel to being an entrepreneur. I always saw myself as an entrepreneur first and kind of a speaker second. And I fell into it. And I really got tired of giving free advice. That was kind of the impetus in my early days. People wanted to, you know, I was successful. They wanted to know why. And I started charging for my time. Uh, I've since found out that if you, know, if you really want to see how people value themselves, see what they charge for their time. Because it's a real issue to unpack for many people. But the first TED Talk was really... A, a talk on a business that I had at the time, which was trying to develop a new form of clean energy called space-based solar power. And it's funny because you know, I give 
two, three day seminars. You know, I've, I've worked as you know, one of the most experienced trainers for Tony Robbins for 15 years. You know, I've, I do a lot on the personal growth side, but you know, I can talk for eight hours on stage, but give me 15 minutes and I've got to plan it for at least a week. Yeah. So uh, that, that was great. It was really about sharing my passion for that business. And then I started getting invited to other TED stages and really, it's the last two that have probably had the, the, the most impact, certainly the most millions of views. And the, 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 the last but one was really the, one of the big stories about, I guess, dealing with adversity, which a lot of people are facing right now, especially for the last two years. Uh, and that was really my six months that I spent in Pentonville five years ago as the only non-criminal in Britain's technical mm. yeah, I want I want to ask you a lot about that. So please carry on. I wasn't sure how you were talking about that, but I'm so glad you brought it up. So tell let's let's talk about that. The six months in jail. Um, go right back to the beginning. What took you there? And more than anything, how did you cope with that? Because Pentonville is not a um, luxurious prison. If there is it by any stretch of the imagination, wouldn't do well on TripAdvisor. I'll give you that. <laughs> but when it when it came to the situation, I didn't see it coming like anything out of you know, comes out of left field. Uh, I I was arguing a business deal. It was a civil action in court with a, a multi-billion dollar company. We'd done a multi-million dollar business deal years before. And they took you know, umbrage over it, some stuff that I thought was you know, outside of the contractual terms. And uh, long story short, they, you know, they essentially sued me. And I thought it was a chess game. Uh, people in business, entrepreneurs know, you know when it comes to litigation, it's a tool. Yeah, it's, it's a chess move. And uh, these guys were good players. And I thought they were just trying to use their financial strong arm muscle to you know, railroad me into a settlement, which I felt was completely you know, irrational. Uh, I felt they were using bullying tactics and it was just out of order. They didn't have a contract you know, to stipulate the terms they're trying to enforce. I'm sorry, that's, you know, that's business. Anyway, they, because I didn't play ball, they issued a contempt of court application saying that I breached a freezing order. And I looked at it and I thought, I haven't done that. I read it, it was clever. It was very you know, uh, articulate, a lot about distorting context to put your version of content forward in a different light. That's kind of what courtroom theater is about, as I've learned. And I literally turned around to my staff and I said, I've just got to pop into court next week and get rid of this, you know, this BS. I never came back. <laughs> I, they sold it to the judge. He gave me six months uh, as a civil prisoner. And again, never been arrested, never been charged of a crime, still don't have a criminal record, never been found guilty. Yeah, it's one of those weird quirks in English law. What is a civil prisoner? I'm going to interrupt you because of our audience who don't even know what is a civil prisoner. What is that? Uh, somebody who's never uh, not in prison because of any crime. Uh, most people are more familiar with contempt of court. If you're in the public gallery and you I'm start, sure. judge, he can send you away for seven days. I mean, that's the for contempt of court. That was essentially what it was. I was I wasn't shouting at the judge. It was, but a contempt of court is you are you know. Uh, disrespecting the court and they felt that mm -hmm. I'd breached the freezing order uh, and that was it. So, and they gave you a six month sentence? Uh, well, it was actually 18 months, but as a civil prisoner, I do automatic half and mm -hmm. I get discharged. I appealed, they dropped it to 12 months, so I served six, but I wasn't segregated. I was I was in with you know, 1,300 prisoners in there. I was the only non-criminal and, uh, and treated as, as all of the others were. And uh, it was funny because if I had have committed any crime, I'd have had a parole officer and I'd have been out sooner on parole. But mm. because I, I wasn't a criminal, I, I wasn't allowed or given a parole officer. I wasn't eligible for parole. So I actually stayed longer in prison than if I'd, you couldn't make it up. Anyway, well, that, that's, that's, that, yeah, that's so unjust. But obviously, well, what, was, what was that like? We all need to know, you know, here you are, a very smart, successful guy running a business, popping into court 
to sort something out and finding yourself in a horrendous Edwardian prison in the middle of London for six months. I mean, I guess you didn't even take a toothbrush. So tell me what that was like to suddenly find yourself in a cell. How old were you, by by the way, when this Five happened? Years ago, I was 50 this year. It was, I was 45. It was 2017. Correct. Yeah. Okay. And so what, what was that like? I mean, it's the stuff of a nightmare. It's like a cafe. You, suddenly you're waking up in a, well, you, you're put in a jail cell and you're going to be there for six months. It must have been incredibly scary. But tell us what, what that was like. I, my business went from 50 staff to three staff in like three minutes. Uh, I was left with a, a third of a million in debt with legal costs and everything else. I, I, my credit rating went because I you know, couldn't pay my bills while I was in. I mean, it was I'd lost literally everything. But the the important point is that when it looked like it was going south, and I thought, you know, the, the girl I was with at the time turned around and says, well, it looks like you could be going away here. I'm like, yeah, I'm starting to learn a lot about how the court system works. And she says, what are you going to do? And I turned around and says, look, I know that fighting what has happened is useless. So many people carry a victim story because you know, they get a lot of secondary gain from it. There's a lot of people very happy being unhappy. Or there's a lot of people that will use a backstory to justify a lack of courage to move forward. And for me, I'm like, you know, I'm very blessed that I've had, you know, what, probably 25 years at that point of being able to inspire people through sharing the work that, that I've shared. And I said to her, the challenge is that maybe the people I can help the most never get to see it because they're in somewhere like jail. You know, if the universe or whatever you want to call it wants to send me in to help people, then let me go. And I knew at that point, Marissa, that the, the biggest factor that would affect my mentality or my mental state was the identity I had walking in with. And I'm a great believer that identity covers mm. so much of personality. You know, why do smokers smoke? Because they're smokers, right? The reasons, you know, you may start smoking is you know, varied. But, you know, if you try to quit smoking as a smoker and try to become a smoker who's quit, you're going to go back to smoking more than likely. Why? Because you're still a smoker. You've got an yeah, identity. Yeah. Willpower, which has a time limit. You change your identity to becoming a non-smoker. There's no need for willpower. It's like vegetarians. Why do vegetarians not eat meat? Yeah, because of their identity. Absolutely. Yeah, they can choose it for various reasons, but once you have the identity, it governs what you order off the menu. So I went in, if I thought, if I walked through those doors, if I walked down those steps with the identity of a prisoner, I can extrapolate already where that's going to send me mentally. It's going to, mm. yeah, the identity. Okay. I made a decision as soon as the judge said, you know, you're going away. Because again, I wasn't found guilty. It's just, you know, that sent me, sent me away. I went in as a secret agent of change. That was clearly my mission. And it started with cheering up the, the guards in the, uh, the basement of the courthouse. Yeah, when I got to the, the, the prison, I, I'd only ever seen stuff like this in movies. Right? I walked into prison, and the first person I met was the, 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 the prison officer who was giving me my clothes. And he's, he says, uh, it's a good question. He says, are you, are you a police officer? I'm like, no, and, and please don't give me that label. <laughs> I'm walking no, of in course. here. I'm Pentonville. No, no. Not, not conducive to life expectancy. Um, yeah. And for those listening, especially in the US, and obviously US is probably a little more you know, familiar with the levels of violence, et cetera. But, you know, there was somebody murdered just you know, a few weeks, me, me getting there. Attempted murders were a, a weekly occurrence. Blood on the floor was a daily occurrence. This, this is not statistically the most violent prison in the UK. And I, uh, I went into the waiting room. And then I got called for a, a doctor's medical assessment. And I'm chatting away with the doctor and he literally turned around and he said, excuse me, I ask you a question. I said, sure. He says, are you undercover? And I started to laugh. I, he says, yeah, 
what's, what's funny, I said, you're the second person that's asked me that. I says, why did you ask me that? He said, I've never seen anybody so calm and happy on the first ever day in prison. Because <laughs> you, you had the undercover mindset, which obviously you were, that was resonating out of you. You decided to view it as something like that, which is extraordinary. But this is so fascinating. So please carry on. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but it's amazing that you thought that thought and two people in just a few minutes picked it up because, of course, what we think starts to resonate out from us and back to us, which is why it's so important to pay attention to your thoughts. But please carry on. So you're now seeing the doctor. Go on. We think you're undercover. I come back out and I'm giving a cell for the evening. It's like a holding cell. It's on a Friday. So I'm in the cell for you know, until Monday without any you know, exercise or anything. So I'm sharing the cell with a, a guy from Bangladesh. He looked massively depressed and upset. And I, I essentially yeah, got to spend two days with him. The reason he was so upset was he had actually gone into court that morning to get a hearing date. And rather than you know, be bailed for the hearing date, the judge put him on remand. Now, that wouldn't be too bad, but he just spent his life savings on getting married the next day. His family had flown in from Bangladesh, and now all of a sudden, everything just, I mean, terrible. He, his whole world had fallen out. And one of the things I kept, which I encouraged my students in you know, everyday life to do, is I keep a magic moments list. You know, we have so many times where we have magic moments, but if you, if you don't take them off the shelf and dust them down, they, they, they tend to get in and fade to the background. And I was determined to keep a magic moments list and create magic moments in prison. And one of the first things on my magic moments list was on the Monday when I got moved to another wing and we said goodbye to each other, having just been banged up for, for two days. He said, I came to prison on Friday thinking my entire world had fallen apart. Now I know I came to prison just to meet you. Isn't that amazing? I was, it was, it's huge. Very, very, very humbling. But to cut a long story short, and I could give many, many examples. I actually ended up with 200 magic moments over the six months. Number 200 was walking out, but I, I ended up getting a lot of the prisoners off drugs. You know, I was stopping suicides. I redesigned the intake system to reduce violence between the wings. That's now being used in prisons all over the world, uh, affecting tens of thousands of prisoners a month. Uh, I'm just speaking to somebody right now in San Francisco, as it turns out, uh, that is um, about to put the uh, the syllabus that I put together in over 300, the hands of 300,000 prisoners in the US. Um, I won a national award for the work that I did while I was in there that was aimed at helping the, the, the people. It, it was one of the most incredible adventures I've ever had the privilege of living. Yeah. And every two weeks, I would write letters to my senior students that had followed me you know, around the world for the last several years, essentially sharing what I was doing. And it was part journal, part how-to manual, part you couldn't make it up, but it was real. Mm. And all the tradecraft everything I'd learned in, at that point, a, a quarter of a century of personal growth, including working alongside Tony Robbins for 15 years. Yeah, and yeah, I'm sure Tony would probably smile tongue in cheek, but I met a lot more crazy people in, in yeah, personal growth seminars than I, <laughs> I did in Pentonville yeah. sometimes. Yeah, uh, yeah. and yeah, I'd say that facetiously and respectfully, but yeah, it was, it was not a, a strange environment in the, the, the patterns of behavior that people were running. Certainly a strange environment in terms of the prison, but we're all made of the same stuff. You know, I, I know what makes you happy or I know how you feel when you're happy. I know how I feel when I'm happy. I know how you feel when you're upset. I know how I feel when I'm upset. And it's tapping into that level of humanity that regardless of the environment, you're able to make a difference with. That's really what powered me through. 
So how did you stay safe? Because, of course, the biggest, as you say, blood on the floor every day, people being murdered. You're suddenly in this prison and you might look, look and they might think, mm, if those first people thought you're an undercover policeman, how did you protect yourself from not being hurt? Or maybe you were hurt. Um, I'd love to know how you stayed safe in a very dangerous environment that you, you weren't prepared for in any way. Question I've been asked several times, and I'll, I'll share with you my you know, authentic response. Now, I, I don't have any tricks or superpowers. I'm certainly not you know, the, the, the biggest you know, cat on the road, yeah, and certainly in that jungle level of environment. You know, there's, there's always a big dog. And what really helped me, because I was safe, I, I never got touched, I was never subject to violence. I think it was two things. One was that I knew I was on a mission to serve. Yeah, mm-hmm. I was, I was, you know, Einstein said the most powerful question somebody can ask or answer in their entire life is whether you live in a friendly or hostile universe. Mm-hmm. And you see a lot of people that say, oh, I, I think I live in a friendly universe, uh, yeah, until it gets dark. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you don't get to choose. You know, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of sailors that think they're good sailors on a calm sea, but yeah. calm seas don't make great sailors. Yeah, so you know when the when the waves show up, that's when you find out where you where, where you stand. And I, I knew that if we are if we're in what I call Earth school, you know, I, I believe that one of the greatest days in the human being's life on their journey of emotional maturity is the day they wake up to the realization that life is a growth centric experience, not a comfort centric experience. And you know, if you go to nature, that's the law it plays by. Everything in nature grows and contributes, or it's taken out of the food chain. You know, the strongest trees aren't the ones with the best parents. You know, the strongest trees aren't the ones that went to the best schools. You know, they're not the ones that are in the best soil. They're the ones that are in the strongest winds. And so, you know, if we look at nature and we know that we're here to grow and contribute, it tends to align with you, but it means by definition you're going to get challenges. Not because you're unlucky, but by design. And so for me personally, it was like, this was what I call a graduation event in Earth School. Am I able to yeah, we all have them. If you're a relationship coach, expect relationship problems so you can demonstrate authenticity in what you teach. Now, if you're a health coach, expect some sort of health challenge so you can demonstrate authenticity in what you teach. And I just saw this as a graduation event for me to hopefully you know, walk a path that could you know, not let myself down too much on applying some of the things I've been teaching from stage in a calm sea. And so I think part of that living in a friendly universe kind of had that air of, of calmness not nervousness, because you know, walking around emanating victim, you're going to attract the circumstances that are valid. So you went so, from being in a cell with this lovely guy from Bangladesh and over those Friday to Monday, and then you were moved. So talk me through walking onto a wing with all these, I would imagine, very scary people. What were the first, second, and third things that you did to protect yourself and to adapt to that? And to make something positive, which you obviously did, you adapted to it, you protected it, but you also did something extraordinary. You, you, you took something good out of it. You thought, okay, here I am, I can't change it. What can I do that's amazing? But I'd love to know those three things. How did sure. you do them? Because I think it's so useful to people listening that, you know, we all say, oh, well, what can you do in adversity? But you did it in, in the most horrifying, terrifying situation where you can't leave you used it to your advantage and you helped so many people in the process. So now talk me through, you've left, it's a Monday and you're going on to a wing. <clears throat> talk me through what happened. So uh, the, the next cell I got put in was actually a very different story. It was a big guy, he was six foot four, he was like twice my size yeah, with, and you know, what I'd call pretty low conscious. And mm-hmm. he was very resentful, a 
of his situation and yeah he'd watched daytime tv jeremy kyle jerry springer mm-hmm. kind of yeah, new, you get, I you get the news. I, 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 I haven't i haven't watched a news report for 18 years i've got mm-hmm. no clue what's going on in the world according to the media i've got every mm-hmm. clue what's going on in my world i'm very protective around that and if something's important enough it'll find me but we had quite a, a an interesting clash of styles should i say and it was I worked hard with him to really help. And the fact that I was coming from a place, this was the, the next thing that really helped in terms of, you know, I guess, avoiding violence. People could sense that I was there to help selflessly, not there to barter. Yeah, everybody in prison's bartering something. Everything's gonna cost you a tin of tune or a spare jersey or a, a something. There's an underground you know, black market of everything. And there's a lot of violence linked to non-payback, shall we say, or you know, not being able to you know, cover exorbitant interest rates on people borrowing money. But yeah, you know, I, I wasn't asking for anything. I was, I was I actually wrote to my students saying that you know, in the movie of my life, I was simply on location for six months filming the prison scene. Don't worry about me. I'm, I'm here. <clears throat> okay. And, and so walking, around, I remember one time I walked through, and this is January, February in England, so it's freezing cold. Now the cells have virtually no heating. The the, the bedding is more of a tablecloth than it is a blanket. And freezing cold at night, and there's people screaming and banging chairs against the door and screaming abuse at the guards. And it's, yeah, it's just like, uh, yeah, another day in the people's zoo. But you know, I, I was there to try to seek opportunities to help. It wasn't about how to protect myself. I didn't care about me. I'm there to serve. And if I thought if I'm there to serve, I, I'm going to be looked after, call it at a higher level of intelligence or whatever label you have mm-hmm. for and I remember walking through the wing one time and I noticed three guys and there was an argument in process and brewing and there's a lot of weapons in there. You know, a lot of people either have knives or they have uh, the, the attempted murder that I just missed on my second week was somebody had a, a toothbrush, a plastic toothbrush and they scraped it on the wall into a spike mm. and then glued um, a razor blade into the actual head. Mm. So from my side, I, I, was, I had what's called sensory acuity. You're looking and trying to interpret so many different things, mostly the non-verbal communication. Mm. Yeah, yeah. What's the body language? What's the positioning? What's the the breathing yeah, patterns? What's the pupil dilation of these on drugs? There's a lot of drugs in there. Yeah. What's the, uh, the, the the heart rate you can spot on the neck? What's the yeah the, the language patterns that are, are, are escalating? All of I'm watching. I'm trained to to look at a lot of that to assess quickly. Yeah, to be able to do interventions. And they were arguing about religion. Great topic, hey? Yeah, when you when you 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 had a Muslim, you had a Christian, you had an atheist, and they're all arguing their own position, and it was starting to get heated. And so, I knew that it was either going to about to kick off into violence, which case we'd all get locked down again, and the dogs would come out, and yeah, we'd lose our forty-five minutes a day that we sometimes, not all, sometimes got out of the cell. Uh-huh, that's pretty much it. And so I've got to quickly assess that, find out through the non-verbal language who is the leader of that, you know, uh, or, or the, the more the antagonist, mm-hmm. and get myself invited into the conversation, maintain the illusion of significance for those that need it, diffuse it, and hopefully try to walk away, you know, with people not exploding into violence. And really, the, uh, a pattern interrupt is the, 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 the fastest way to be able to just stop somebody's state for a second. I walk past and I says, oh, excuse me, guys, says, anybody know if we're going to get exercise today? And they kind of stopped and looked and I was, you know, it was just casual, innocent guy walking past. Uh, and the guy who was, you know, sort of the antagonist, he's gone, he was arguing from the uh, um, 
uh, Islam perspective and why Islam gets a bad name and the Christian guy was pushing his side and the atheist was calling them both. You know, it is, you can just imagine the tension. So well, I hope so. They keep us locked up like animals here. And yeah, then the, the atheist guy jumped in and agreed. And now once you've got a bit of an agreement frame, it's, it helps diffuse mm. a little bit. And um, I says, oh, I says, yeah, tell me about it. I says, we, we've been out, no exercise for the last three days. And because if it's raining, welcome to England in, in January, February, virtually every day, we don't go out because the guards don't like to get wet. So uh, I says, oh, what are you guys shouting about? Don't mind me asking. And you know, my body language is neutral, I'm, I'm, but I'm directing my nonverbal, uh, the uh, the main guy who's you know sort of starting to get heated at that time when I came in. And he says, oh, well, you know, starts giving me this spiel about, you know, why Islam gets a bad rap and, you know, it's a small faction that bring it all down. And when listening to somebody's story, you, you need to get the trailer. If you let them, and I'm sure you know, you're an expert at this, Marissa, if you allow them to get too far into it, you're reinforcing mm. the pattern that they're getting their gain from by addicting themselves to their story. So you need to elicit enough so they feel like they've been heard, but not enough so that they're reinforcing their position and become more rigid. Mm. Uh, and so at some point when he went to take a breath, I've gone, wow, that sounds fascinating. Again, agreement frame and you're not challenging on that. Not, I've always wondered why, you know, when it comes to religion, yeah, people that uh, are on a spiritual path and people that are, are moving towards high levels of principles tend to yeah, argue about you know, different versions of that. It's kind of like from where I see it, different teachers in school teaching a similar curriculum because all of the you know, spiritual masters that I've you know, studied, and you know, I'm not an expert, really have taught the same thing, unconditional love uh, and faith linked to ritual and avoiding things like you know, arguments and petty violence. Uh, I, I said, you know, I'm sure somebody who's smart enough to be able to be a spiritual student would be smart enough to appreciate that they're probably grateful for the other teachers in class sharing the load. Yeah. And you can almost hear a pin drop. And then you know, we, we started to engage in this conversation whereby, again, I'm validating them, but diffusing the edges on the argument. And at some point when they're like, yeah, yeah, I guess you got a point. And I'm linking insignificance to the continuation of the pattern. If you're smart enough to be spiritual, surely you're not dumb enough to be, yeah, arguing over yeah, into violence. It was kind of the angle that I was yeah, elegantly putting uh, around. Uh, the, the... And where did you learn this? Is this something you learned from Tony Robbins or had you, had you already learned that somewhere else? Because it's a fascinating tool to have to anyone who can diffuse an argument that skillfully. Now I need to know where did you learn that skill? I owe a lot of my, my journey to, to Tony. I mean, I, in 2002, I became his youngest serving trainer. I was very, I get very yeah. grateful and appreciate for that. And I spent 15 years yeah, learning and traveling and uh, working alongside the events on interventions, whether it's you know, drug addicts, whether it's homeless, whether it's people that have been abused or raped or what have you, and, and being able to get in and, and make a significant change. So I learned a lot of that skill set through that you know, time in the saddle, but it's also a passion and say to understand human behavior. Not understanding that had led me to working 130 hours a week and nearly killing myself leaving the office. So if I can't figure out the guy in the mirror and we're all made of the same stuff, then I'm going to repeat yeah. the same patterns. I vowed not to do that. That was really part of my impetus. I'd love to know about your childhood now, because and also the fact that you were the, one of the youngest trainers in the army too. So let take me right back. What was your childhood like? What did your parents do? And what made you so unusual and set you on this very interesting path where you've done some truly staggering stuff? So Tell me, where did, what, what were your mum and dad like and how did they shape you? I mean, amazing couple. They're, they're both sadly no longer with us, but 
I, my mother was a, a special minister for the Catholic Church. My father was an atheist. Okay. It was a, an interesting dichotomy to grow up in, but in hindsight, okay. looking back, it, was, it taught me something vicariously that mm. was very powerful, and that is that they never imposed on each other their own model yeah. of the world. Yeah, they lived in peace with their different ideas. My dad would be happy for mum and her friends to come over. He'd call them the God Squad. And he'd go down the pub and they could have the run of the house and mum could put up religious statues all over. And he was cool with that as long as she wouldn't try to convert him. Yeah. He went to yeah. church the day he was married and that was his lot. Right. Um, and so and my mum was fine. She, she, she loved my dad, uh, you know, on, you know, for who he was. And even myself growing up, I, uh, it, it was a great childhood. I don't have any negative memories. And I know that's a very fortunate position compared to a lot yeah. of people. But there were some significant shifts looking back that made some profound impacts. And again, I, one of the things I'm grateful to Tony for, one of the most powerful things he ever said, and we're in a small leadership training, and he turned around and he said, if you really want to get good at helping people, get good at spotting patterns because there's only so many of them. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, but I, I took that to heart. And I look back in my own life, and one of the patterns that I saw was that I was, I was grateful enough to be put into private school until the age of 10. I was born on a council estate. Yeah, my mom and dad were working class, but they, like most parents, wanted the best for their kids. They worked all hours God sent. Instead of putting me into the state school system, they wanted to try to get me into private school. They thought that that model for that generation was, you know, that was the best thing you could do for your kids. And so, you know, I, I started school, you know, uh, private school up until 10. And then my mother came one time, sat me down and said, uh, the school are putting the fees up and mum and dad can't afford it anymore. But we want to keep you here if you want to stay, but it means I've got to take a second job and you won't see me in the evenings. Happy to do it. Or if not, you go to the state school and then it's kind of a lottery as to whether you go to college or university or not because the teachers aren't pushing you and you know that you, know, you don't get the guaranteed education from you know, you school. And I wanted to see my mum. I'm 10 years old. I'm like, I'll, I'll go figure it out. And so I left the private school at 10 and in the eight weeks of the summer holiday, every single day it was drilled into me out of yeah, love from mom and dad, right? Out of desperation for wanting their kids to succeed. But it was drilled into me. If you don't work hard, you'll end up emptying the dustbins of you know, the people you were just at school with. You, you know, I, I thought that if I didn't achieve and be you know, self-propelled, I'd spend my life living on a park bench. And I, I look back at that eight-week period, and it turned me into the classic overachiever. Everything I did from the age of 10 was to try to prove I was good enough, to try to you know, make sure I didn't end up you know, living on the street. And again, it made me successful, but massively unfulfilled, because my primary question was, yeah, and now what? What's next? How can I achieve yeah. more? You know, it's a tunnel with no cheese. Mm. So, yeah, that, that, that was a turning point, and it's a two-edged sword. Yeah, again, it made me financially independent at a young age, but you know, yeah, massively depressed and stressed out. So you have no work-life balance, but I imagine you have it now. So can I ask you, how do you have work-life balance now? What does that look like to you? Well, being completely honest, I, I came out of Pentonville, you know, say four and a half years ago, a third of a million in debt. I had you know, nothing in the bank. I owed 150 people seminars or trips around the world that pay for that got canceled. I've got no credit rating. I've got absolutely nothing. I got excited with that. I'd never dug myself out of a hole that deep. That was like, wow, you know, let's, uh, let, let's see what's going to unfold from here. 
And yeah, I've the startup is usually the, the most intense time. And I ended up coming to, to Tenerife, the, the island I now live on. Uh, I put my two dogs and all everything I owned in a, a battered old van that nobody would give breakdown insurance for uh, two and a half years ago. And I landed on the island with one month rent in the bank and I'd managed to get back to a quarter of a million in debt at that point and just went to work. Now, luckily at that time I was single. I, you know, so I, I could sacrifice that that nobody else was suffering because I'm spending time mm. in the office. But I'm an entrepreneur. I know how to build businesses. That's That's been my game. And so for the last two years, yeah, following that, I went to work and I'm, I'm very proud. You know, I've, I've, I'm back on my feet. I've built a $10 million business from scratch. Yeah, you know, I've, I'm adding value to, to you know, tens of thousands of people around the world. And, and really, I've got an amazing team. I just took them all to Mexico as a, a, a last week to say thank you for them hitting their targets in 2021. Uh, and that takes a lot of time. But you know, I have a relationship and there is a work-life balance. Uh, I, you know, I live on a beautiful island. I'd hate to not see the sun when I moved here because I like sun. Right? So you ask yourself the question, what's most important right now? How much is this going to matter 10 years from now? Now, again, I'm not doing what I do because I care about what's in the bank. Yeah, I've had minus lots. I've had plus lots. I'm still me. You know, I'm doing it because I'm passionate about being able to add value to people in a way where I can share some of my message and gifts to help somebody maybe live a better day. That's what drives us, what gets me up early, keeps me up late and pushes me out the door. And, and, and then it's not it's not stress. Are you still in touch with anyone from Pentonville? Because I know a few, I've worked with a few people amazingly who went to jail, came out and have stayed in touch. I actually met Martha Stewart last year. I thought she was the most incredible woman. And what I love about her is she never apologizes for having gone to jail. I really admire Jonathan Aitken, who was a British politician who's now a minister. And he said that he, he had friends come and stay with him after he came out of jail and he's terribly posh and lived in Belgravia. And I loved that. So I wanted to ask you, did you stay in touch with people? Did you make some real friends or people that have stayed in your life in Pentonville? Well, one of the things I did when I came out, I had to put on uh, a seminar to the people that uh, I'd let down that got canceled. And again, this is January, 2017 when I went away. We just spent 50 grand that month on Facebook ads to sell 50 grand of the tickets. Hmm. So, you know, kind of break even putting people in the room and then you know, some of them may want to buy other things. But, you know, I, I, I got nothing. I've got all of these people I owed seminars or trips to. And, I, and that was my first focus. How do I repay those people? So it took me uh, about eight months coming out to put the money together and, and borrow, beg and steal to create the events that I'd already owed people to. And at that event, I gave several scholarships to some of the prisoners that I'd met in there that came, some of which had transformed their life. They got promotions, wow. uh, jobs again. And one of them, which was a cellmate, a gentleman called Patrick, uh, actually invited me to become godfather to his son, which I am. Yeah, I knew and, you'd say that. I, I knew that you'd stay in touch with him because, yeah, that's who you are. But that's a beautiful story that you turned that into something quite remarkable. How do you avoid burnout? Because obviously you said you came to this island and you went straight to work. But how do you avoid burnout? What advice would you give to other people to avoid burnout? Because it's, it's such a problem now, even the literal brain burnout. How do you avoid that, Peter? Let's come back to the asking better questions. Yeah. Why are you doing what you're doing? I once heard when I was a young man, I didn't really understand the gravity of it at the time because I was too busy trying to be an achiever. Uh, but yeah, if you love what you do, you never have to work a day in your life. Yes, it's true, yeah. And there's a difference between expressing your passion versus mm -hmm. 
doing something because you feel you have to in order to fill in whatever blank you've put in there. And so if you're burning out, it's because it's no longer fun for you. If you're burning out, it's because you're focused on you know, thinking you need something in order to feel good enough, validated, have significance or certainty or provide for your family or be a good enough parent or whatever it may be. You're putting so much pressure on yourself or you're settling for certainty of doing something you don't like. And therefore, that's just like a splinter in your mind. That's just aching constantly. And that's really going to you know, that's only got one destination called escalation. So if you're burning out right now, it's time to stop and ask better questions. You can't solve yeah, an achiever-based stress burnout pattern by trying to get good with time management. It's never going to happen. All you're going to do, and you can't manage time. That's another big misnomer. Mm. Yeah, you can't manage time any more than you can manage the current of a river while swimming in it. Yeah, so the fact that we say, I want to manage my time better so I'll be less stressed, you're already on the back foot. In other words, because you, you can't run out of now. Yeah, let's, let, let's be honest. Right? It's your relationship to time. Manage your focus. Don't manage time. Yeah, you, that's, that's a hamster wheel to nowhere. If you try to manage time to get more done so you can be more relaxed because you're too busy, then there's something more going on. And I've worked with, again, a lot of CEOs. I'll give you a quick example, see if people relate to this. You know, I had a guy come to me to teach him time management. Why? Because he's stressed, he's got too much on, and he hasn't got enough hours in the day. He's burning out. Anyway, most business coaches or you know, high-level coaches would probably try to teach him some good time management techniques. But I'm like, no. Nah. A couple of questions later, it's pretty obvious what the issue is. The guy's petrified of rejection. Now, the fact that he's petrified of rejection means that he dare not say no to anyone because if he says no, it'll trigger a rejection response. Therefore, he says yes to too many things. Therefore, he's got too much on his plate. Therefore, he thinks he needs time management. Or another pattern would be you, know, you are a control freak. You're trying to control everything. Why? Because yeah, you, you don't understand that you can't control 95% of the variables that you're trying to control. Uh, what you need to give up is the need for control and be able to delegate. But if you're trying to micromanage because you think everybody should see your business the way you do, you're on a fast track to a heart attack. So let's work on your ability to let go, not your ability to manage time so you can free up more time in your calendar to put more stuff in and then be more stressed about it. <laughs> that makes sense? Yeah, of course. So, you know, your name is Peter Sage. I mean, you definitely are a sage. You certainly, somebody somewhere gave you the right surname. Because you're a sage, here's another question. What advice would you give to budding entrepreneurs? What, 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 do, what do entrepreneurs need to know? There's so many of them, but what do they need to know to make a success of being an entrepreneur the way you have more than once? Let's start with coming back to what I said about identity. The challenge with budding entrepreneurs, or what I call the wantrepreneurs, is that they, they think that in order to be a successful entrepreneur, they have to have a successful business. And that is putting the cart before the horse. Yeah, if you say, no, I'm, I am an entrepreneur, even if you're working for somebody else, you're an undercover entrepreneur, you're an entrepreneur in waiting, whatever it may be, and you turn around and you use that as an identity, entrepreneurs attract opportunities because that's what we do. If you're saying, well, I want to be an entrepreneur, but I'm scared of being able to take a risk in case I fail, you're never going to have the success that you want. And the other thing is to understand yeah, that, yeah, if, if, again, if I lost everything tomorrow, it would be a damn good excuse to go again because I'm an entrepreneur. I don't need a business that's successful. I've lost more times than I won. You know, I just keep my average number of tries up. But when it comes to understanding failure and fear of failure, understanding that failure is your capital and having that switch in your connection to it. Yeah, if I was to turn around to a guy who wanted some dating advice who's like 
scared of rejection and, and always been single and craving a, a, a date. And I was to tell him that the fifth girl he asked out would be his dream soulmate. What's he going to say? Well, I'm sorry, I, I can't deal with four rejections, so therefore I'll be single for the rest of my life. No, you're going to say, how fast can I get through four no's? Mm, of course. You know, a successful entrepreneur. What if I said that your third business, your fourth business, was the one that gave you the financial independence? Well, you're not going to go through the first three because you're going to work at Tesco's for the rest of your life? No. Start understanding that failure is your capital. Yeah, when you can unhook your self-worth from your net worth, you have that level of freedom to be able to go out and swing the bat. No one's taking this with them. Now, the Egyptians tried that. We dug it up and stole it. You know, when it comes to you know, being able to say, no, I'm here to play the game. If I'm starring of the star of the movie of my life, rather than settling for being an unpaid film extra in somebody else's, then from that perspective, I want to go live the movie I want to live. Nobody wants to pay good money to watch James Bond rescue a kitten out of a tree for 90 minutes. Yeah, that's, yeah, you're going to want your money back. So mm -hmm. instead, it's like, what does a great movie have? It has everything. It has tragedy and comedy and romance and yeah, action and disaster. It has everything. I want to get to the end of this life. And if I'm privileged enough to choose the last words out of my mouth, I want it to be, wow, now that was a movie I'd pay to watch again. Mm. And if I could give any entrepreneur or budding entrepreneur that level of device to come from it from that place, you're going to have fun going through swinging the bat and striking out and missing and getting a home run and then striking out again. And, yeah, go play the game. And from that place, you'll have an incredible life. So here's my last question for you. You almost did answer it, actually, but let me ask it anyway. Can you give our audience three tips to master your mind? What, what would you say the three, three best things that you do to master your own mind? Firstly, understand, and I, I love the, the quote behind you, yeah, I'm enough. Yeah, understand I have it everywhere. You were born good enough. Mm -hmm. Yeah, nothing to prove, nothing to defend, nothing to conquer. From that place, you realize out of 400 million little tadpoles, you're the one that won. You were born with a gold medal, right? It's, you know, that, that's better odds than the Olympics, right? So if you can start to understand that no matter what you've done, no matter what you've not done, you're worthy of love. You can start unhooking from that yeah, uh, fruitless chase on the hamster wheel to, to nowhere to try to go and find it from somewhere else. So knowing you're enough, knowing you're worthy of love, and just acknowledging the fact that by getting here, you're ahead of the game. Yeah. Second thing, make gratitude your friend. Gratitude is such an available emotion. It gives off the same energetic signature akin to unconditional love. But you used to say to somebody to give unconditional love, they've got no references. Our earliest memory, four or five years old, we've already got three, four years of learning that love is conditional from being a, mm. you know, a toddler where you can do nothing or a baby do nothing wrong, right? It's inconvenient if you throw up on mum when you're a, you know, a baby, but you know, it's not the baby's fault. It's what babies do. But once you're a toddler you know, and you start getting those tantrums because you know, you're no longer the center of the universe, but you still want to be, <laughs> right? Mm. Yeah. You realize that the model of parenting is you, know, you get rewarded for doing what you perceive to be right. And the perception of love is either given or withdrawn. I'm not saying it is given or withdrawn, the perception from the child. Yeah, of course. Mom's still the kid, but the kid is like, oh, I've done something wrong. The perception is love is withdrawn. So we know that unconditional love, it, people don't have references, very many. So gratitude is different. Make gratitude your friend. Write down a list of things to be grateful for. And not so you can tick the box. There's a lot of apps these days, five things to be grateful for before I go to bed, and it becomes a to-do. And people to live from intellect instead of being. Mm. And so when you can realize a gratitude list 
is a shoehorn that allows you easier access to feeling grateful, not thinking of something to be grateful. There's a bridge there most people forget to cross. Right? So make gratitude your friend. There's always something to be grateful for. You're breathing. You've been born in a time in human history our ancestors have dreamed about, including most of our own who died in childbirth, uh, allowing us the gift and the privilege to be here today. You know, we've, uh, you, you can walk into a supermarket that you didn't build, look at fruits from countries you've never visited that were grown by people you never met, transported on ships you didn't have to learn how to sail, so you can buy it for a couple of bucks. I mean, if you can't find reasons to be grateful right now, we need to chat. You know, there's always something, because what's wrong is always available. We know that. A lot of people are good at that game, but so is what's right. That'll be my second tip. Now, and the third tip, if you're getting stressed, if you're getting overwhelmed, yeah, if, you, if you start to feel that yeah, it's, it's getting too, too much, start shifting your focus to be more outward-centric than inward-centric. If you can start to focus on what you can give rather than what's missing in your life, you'll start to align with that growth and contribution aspect and, and life tends to get easier. And it's a sad fact that most people are stressed because they're too focused on themselves and what's missing. And the second we start to try to help others, and you take an entrepreneur that's stressed or burnt out or going through divorce and put them in a soup kitchen where they're serving other people for a week, you change their life. You get somebody go out and, and work in, a, in an orphanage for you know, two days and see the difference that they can make and put smiles on somebody else's face. You change their life, our problems shift. And if you yeah, want to really master those three things are a great place to start. Well, thank you. Great advice. So finally, tell me about your last book and where we can find you. Wow. Well, uh, I'm very privileged for that because uh, I, I mentioned that every two weeks I wrote to my senior students mm -hmm. telling them what I was doing and all of the, the tricks and things that I was trying to do in prison to help myself and other people. Myself, you know, prevent myself from getting depressed and, and sort of stay above board mentally in, a, in the toughest challenge I've faced. And other people and the techniques I'd learned on how to transform prisoners' lives who were you know, in there for murder or, you know, uh, depressed or everything else. And when I came out, those 11 letters had changed the lives of my students more than my seminars. Mm. And they said, you've got to publish it. I'm like, well, these are private letters. You know, you guys paid me a lot of money to learn this stuff you know, at one point. And they're like, it'll help a lot of people. That's my hot button. I said, let's do it. We published the letters. It's called The Inside Track. I I'm so grateful. I mean, it's had so many, uh, it's won many awards. It's been praised by people like, you know, John Asraf, Brian Tracy, John D. Martini is mm -hmm. one of the best books I've read in personal growth. Oh, um, nice. Wow. That must feel so good. And it's changed the life of, of pretty much everybody that's read it if you read any of the reviews. And I'm um, if you don't mind, I I've got a gift for, for your you know, listeners if uh, yes, given please. their time. I made a, a mission to try to get this book into as many hands as possible because of the difference it's made. Yeah, uh, I articulate the interventions, how I stop somebody committing suicide in, in less than five minutes permanently. You know, all of the stuff. Not some clever. I've, I've been doing it for 25 years at that point. I'd have to be yeah in the slow learners club not to have learned something. And so uh, it costs me. It's 24.95 on Amazon. It costs me. Uh, to have it printed, to have it shipped to my warehouse, to have it stored and then sent to people in North America or Europe, cost me about $14. Mm -hmm. If you go, I've got a link set up, getpeatsbook.com forward slash Marissa. And if you give me $10 towards that, I'll take the $4 hit. I've set a whole load of books aside and I'd love everybody that wants one to be able to take one of me. I've got to ask something for it. Otherwise, you know, there's, if, if you don't pay, you don't pay attention. Yeah, yeah. but. I'll cover that as a gift to your ears for, and listeners for anyone that's given us their time. And I'm grateful for that to try to help as many people as oh. I can. I'm 
someone you care about or someone you know that's struggling or buy two copies. That's all I'm saying. Thank you so much. I'd love that. I think that's such a nice gift. And so many books change people's lives. And I know you've written several, but I'm excited too. I, I really want to now read the inside track. So where can we find you? Uh, I'm on Instagram, PeterSage007. Uh, I'm on uh, PeterSage.com is my website. There's always putting resources out. I'm trying to give as much free stuff out there to help as many people, especially in today's world as I can. Uh, I've obviously got other programs and stuff, but I, I really want people to resonate with the message of being able to help themselves and know that yeah. they're not alone. <laughs>